Good to see you, all of you. Glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 in just a moment. If you want to grab a Bible and turn there, uh, or turn to it on your gadget, your phone, your tablet, whatever you've got there. Um, hopefully, you have some way to access God's Word. If not, we have blue Bibles sporadically placed around the room under the chairs. Um, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. Put your name in it, take it home. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians 3, the first six verses this morning. And, um, and so as we get ready to, to approach what Paul has to say to us and what God has to say to us through Paul's words in Ephesians 3, um, here's what's going to happen today. There's a theme running through Ephesians, and the theme is this, the mystery of the gospel. And it's not the only one of Paul's letters to have this theme. Colossians mentions the mystery of the gospel. Uh, in Romans, part of the gospel is described as mysterious. And so what we understand by this is not that the gospel can't be understood in mystery, but that it is mysterious and God unveils it, reveals it to us. And as Paul talks through the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians, we're really going to see there are three primary components to the gospel. Now, these aren't three separate. You can have one without the other. They're very interdependent, but that we would think in terms of the three implications, primary implications of the gospel, this mysterious gospel. So let me re rehash a little bit for you or with you. So on, uh, on a first level, a first layer, um, Paul is talking about it's mysterious that God would send something of such great value as his son to the earth to save people, right, who don't look like they should belong to God. That's mysterious. It's what Paul is talking through in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 where he begins talking about how we've been adopted as sons and daughters now by this, by this great God, this great king. And he ends with this security of inheritance that we now have. The, the prophet Hosea, uh, God speaks to the prophet Hosea about this, speaking forward to what would happen on the cross. God has Hosea name one of his children, not my people, which is a lousy name if you're the child. And, uh, and then just a few chapters later, God tells Hosea to come to his child and say to, not my people, you are now my people. And so God uses this to illustrate a foreshadowing of what he would do on the cross, that he would make those who aren't his people, who don't look like his people, who don't act like his people, to be adopted in as sons and daughters and become his people. Um, I, I like the, the way that Peter puts it in one of his letters in 1 Peter chapter 2. He starts off in the first verse by uh, calling those Christians out of sin. This is what he says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So just a description. He's saying, put away all the things that make you look like you don't belong to God. So obviously there was an issue with these things or he wouldn't have been saying it, Right? Put away these things that make you look like you don't belong to God. And then look what he says down in verse 9 and 10. To these same people who are struggling with malice and deceit, envy and slander, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And so the first part of what Paul is walking us through in the mystery of the gospel is that God would save people who don't look like they should be saved at all. People who are rebelling against God, going the opposite way. Many of, many of your testimonies, my testimony included, reflects this. I was doing everything I could to, to look not like God when he awakened me and drew me to himself. And he saved somebody who didn't look like his child and adopted him in as his son. And so the first part of Paul's letter, he's walking us through this mystery of God saving those who don't look like they deserve to be saved and calling those people his own. Well, then last week, we moved into chapter two, starting in verse 11. Paul wanted us to think even more deeply about the implications of the gospel. And he said to us, the gospel that saves you also unites you. And he used this historic rivalry between the Jews and the Gentiles as an example. And he reminded that, he reminded the two that you're no longer two different identities in the church. The two have now become, become one. And every reason you had to not get along, to not like one another, to be hostile towards one another, all those reasons were killed on the cross. And so that if you have been saved, you therefore have also been united. The gospel that saves you unites you. Now today, Paul is gonna move to a deeper implication of the gospel as we begin to talk about this gospel that now moves through us. And I was reminded of this this morning as I was getting ready to start the first service. It was about 30 minutes out from the first service. Um, typically, I'm, uh, I'm in a zone. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying about God moving through me and in, in, you know, getting me out of the way. And those sort of things are going on in my mind. And today I get a text message. I don't normally check text messages. Uh, a, a text message from, from a member who let me know about a situation that um, was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching, uh, brokenness. And so I'm in my office in there, and I'm reading this text. I text back, hey, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to spend some time praying for you and for this situation. I finished that, and I came out in the hallway, and I passed people in the hall who were joyful about life who were happy to be here, who were walking in the freshness of God's grace, and there was a tension I was feeling as I was walking down the hallway, and I wanted to, I wanted to mourn. I wanted to mourn with, with this situation and these people, but I want to celebrate with you. And in that moment, especially as we moved into singing about brokenness, I was just reminded that God's still healing brokenness. And in this moment, I'm healed, and there's joy, but there's still brokenness in our world. And there's still people who are walking through the darkness. And so what Paul's gonna do is gonna, he's gonna move us from salvation just landing on us to say, this is supposed to be moving through you, not just landing on you. And so we'll pick this up. I'm gonna read the first six verses and then we'll talk about it from Ephesians chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, the mystery is that... The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, 
we're going to come back and walk through it. And, and what I'm going to point out to you um, boldly this morning appears in these verses somewhat subtly, okay? And, and, I, and I'm confident that Paul is communicating these things just because I've read his other letters where at times he really points these things out boldly. But Paul just said some really powerful things subtly as he walked through the implications of the gospel that I want us to see, hear, feel, and be moved by this morning. Starting back in verse one, he begins, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Now, Paul has already introduced himself in the letter. We did this the very first week, the introduction. He said, hey, I'm writing this. I'm Paul, an apostle for Christ Jesus. He's reintroducing himself here, not because the people had forgotten who was writing, but he wants us to see something about his situation that we might understand even about ours. And so here's, here's what he points out. For this reason, I, Paul, you haven't forgotten that part, but you may have forgotten this, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And so Paul is most likely writing this from prison, um, more than likely happening around Acts 28 in, in, uh, in your Bible, where uh, Paul has been shipwrecked, he makes it to shore, he's gathering some wood for a fire, and he gets bit by a snake, ends up back in prison, okay? Just a real joy-filled season for Paul. And so he's writing this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, probably just right after that from prison. So there's a, there's a sense of reality to Paul's writing this, right? I'm gonna remind you, I'm writing this from, from prison. But when you look at the way that Paul writes about himself in the scriptures, very rarely is he simply just noting something geographically or, or just factually about where he's at. He's almost always implying something deeper. And like most, most often, he'll refer to himself as a servant or a bondservant to Jesus. Um, the other apostles, uh, James, John, Peter, also refer to themselves as bondservants, these willing slaves to Jesus. And so while Paul is writing, yes, I am in prison under Roman lockdown, I'm also a prisoner for Christ on your behalf. There's something willing about me being a prisoner here, me being confined to Christ, me being chained to Christ, if you will. These are good chains that I have on me that keep me committed to this mission. So he goes on to say, for this reason, Paul, a prisoner, not for the Romans, but for Christ Jesus on behalf of you. Now, Paul is going to be one of the, the New Testament authors who most vividly talks about how God can bring purpose out of our pain and suffering. And we know that Paul believed this on an individual level. In Romans 5, he's talking about facing trials and suffering. And he goes on to say, we actually rejoice in our suffering in Christ. And he goes on to say, why? Because suffering is changing me and transforming me. And ultimately, it's producing hope. So my trials, my suffering, my hardships, shipwrecks, bit by a snake, thrown in prison, those are, those are life-changing for me in a good way. God is using those things to refine me and to shape my character and draw me into the image of Jesus. But Paul also notes that in suffering and trials, that God uses them for the benefit of others. And so here, just subtly, he said, oh, let me remind you, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, but not just to my end, on your behalf as well. It was my journeying, journey, journeying to get to you that caused a lot of this. It was me trying to get to you, me trying to get to proclaim the beautiful gospel to you that, that ended me up in prison, that ended me up in chains. I don't think he's saying, hey, feel sorry for me. He's just reminding them where I'm at right now. This is on your behalf as well. 
So then he goes on, and, and I, I pulled this out of a letter he wrote to a young pastor, First um, Timothy chapter one. He's writing to young Timothy, and he, he makes this statement that I think is so revealing about his heart. So in, in chapter one of First Timothy, verse 15, Paul's gonna say, I need to share something with you important, a trustworthy saying. And here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it is. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sounds like Paul's thinking about everybody else right there. But he moves, he says, no, of whom I am the foremost. He's acknowledging his need to be saved, his need for God's grace. And he's calling himself, I'm the worst one. Then he goes on to say, of whom I'm the worst or the foremost, but I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect, his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying, the grace that God has poured out on me wasn't just for me. I mean, it was for me. I was the worst sinner. I needed it. But it wasn't just for me. God has richly poured out his grace on me and in me, but he's also pouring it through me to you. In verse two, Paul continues this line of thought and he begins with the phrase, assuming that you have heard. So just to help you with that phrase, because he says it twice in this letter, he's writing from, from, a, from a point of separation. He hasn't been here in a while. And if we read in Acts how this church starts, it starts with just a few people. Matter of fact, there were like 12 men initially that were this congregation. It's grown some since then through their testimony and through sharing the gospel with others, the church is growing. So he's talking to people and writing to people who he's partially never met, some of them. And he's saying, assuming that the rest of you heard it the same way as the first of you did. That's why that phrase shows up. So he says, assuming that you have heard of, and here's what he wants to bring up now, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And what he's hoping is that those who have become Christians since Paul's left, they have heard from the first original Christians who were there in that church, they've heard about how God has used Paul as a steward of his grace. Now, the word stewardship here is really a, a beautiful word to help us understand what I think Paul is trying to get at here. The word stewardship implies two primary things. One, the idea of management, okay? Overseeing something, um, being able to step back and look at the big picture, take inventory on, on something, maybe like in a business. Are we, are we putting our energy where it needs to be? Are things productive? Good managers are good self-inventory takers. Am I spending time the way I need to be spending time? And ultimately, they're looking at what? The goal, to make sure that all the resources, all the energy being poured into it are reaching a goal, which is the, the second implication of the word stewardship, which is to have or to come up with or to make a plan. A good steward is a good planner. And it's, it's literally a translation of this word. So that's why when we sit down to look at finances and we wanna look at a spreadsheet with a budget, we're not simply looking to find out how much money we don't have. We're trying to create a, a plan, a proactivity, right, to fix the situation. And so the idea of being a good steward, as Paul's calling himself that, first he's, he's received something from God and he's been charged to manage it well, to steward it well, to think about the end goal and make sure he's leading what God has trusted him with towards that goal, but to also make sure that he is proactively initiating a plan. He's not just writing this letter because he misses these folks. He understands his role 
as he writes and he reminds them of the gospel, he's correcting and shaping and realigning the church towards the right goal. Um, read Galatians. It'll help you understand the heartbeat behind it where Paul talks about how they've so quickly deserted the gospel and grabbed a hold of another one. He's realigning them towards the right goal. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's seen in all of his letters. So, so what Paul's saying to them is, I've been, the grace that's been given to me wasn't just for me. God gave it to me as a steward to manage, to think proactively about what to do with it. But then he, he exposes himself here by saying this. He's a steward of God's grace that was given to me for who? For you. So Paul sees himself as a, as a connector between God's grace and people who don't know God's grace. He sees himself, right, as simply a conduit, if you will, between what God is doing, what God has done in him, and what God wants to do with other folks. Now, we'll continue on. We'll come back to this um, in, in just a minute. But ultimately what Paul's getting at here is he's saying, I want to reveal this mystery to you. Um, this past Friday night, uh, our life group, we were, we were discussing reconciliation um, horizontally between people and how our reconciliation between us and God then moves us to be reconcilers between people. And so um, one of our life group members brought up this, uh, this teaching and parable from Matthew 18 where Jesus is explaining how this is supposed to work. And, uh, and it got me excited because I knew what I was preaching. And I was thinking, yes, we're going to be talking about that on Sunday. And so here's how it works. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching about reconciliation, okay? And he, he lays out a plan and says, if you have been offended by someone, go to them one-on-one -on -one and try to work it out between the two of you. And the implied goal is that it stops there. Reconciliation happens. He says, but then if it doesn't, here's a, here's a second layer to that. Go find somebody you trust who knows hopefully both of you well, maybe as a witness to the situation who can help bring about that reconciliation. If that doesn't work, hoping that it does, if it doesn't, the third layer is bring it before the church and let the church weigh in on the matter, okay? So Jesus is teaching this and the disciples are listening. And when he gets done teaching, Peter asks a question. And, and so Peter comes to Jesus and he's, you, can, you can tell he's wrestling about, with this and he's thinking about actually putting it into play. You can tell by his question he's thinking about that. So in 18.22, here's his question, actually in 21. Peter, this is Matthew 18.21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And we know that's really not his question. He already knows the answer to that. We can tell by what he's gonna say next. Here's his real question. Not how many times is my brother gonna sin against me because I'm pretty sure I know it's gonna be a lot. But here's my real question. How many times should my brother sin against me and I be expected to forgive him? That's my real question. You see, he's already beginning to think about putting rubber on the road and living this out, what Jesus just taught. And he's already thinking, right, about being offended multiple times by the same person. And the expectation is there. It's going to happen. What I need to know, Jesus, is how many times do you expect me to extend grace to that person? Well, he, he's, you know, I, as if Jesus can't come up with his own answers, he offers an answer. Uh, and, I, and I don't really know what Peter's, what's happening in his heart. But maybe on some level he wants to reveal, I'm not asking this because I'm not willing to do it on some level. And so he actually answers to indicate, I'm willing to do this, but I just need to know, what the expectation is. He says, well, how about seven times? 
It's a good number, right? You've got to pick a number. God created the earth in seven days. Seven's a good number. So this will indicate, Jesus, I'm willing to participate in this. I just need to know at what point do you give me permission to stop? And so Jesus answers him first with a, a beautiful and complex phrase. Jesus says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times. It's his way of saying, I'm not affirming that, Peter. But I do say to you, 77 times, or sometimes translated 70 times seven, okay? Now that is actually a, an idiom or a, a, a phrase that was used in this culture to express something, the idea of something not really having boundaries, something going on and on, something that's maybe irrational. This phrase is used so that you would go, well, I can't get to the end of that. That's the point, okay? And so Jesus first responds to him with this statement that was somewhat irrational saying, Peter, you're not going to get to the end of that equation. It's kind of like our, um, in math, our irrational numbers. I'm looking at students because the adults have already forgotten them by now. But the numbers that go on and on and on and on, like pi, 3.1462, something, something. Anyway, I've long forgotten. Numbers like that that are irrational. They don't have, you can't, you can't confine them rationally in a fraction and, and measure them. They just keep going. And at some point out there, we lose sight of them. Okay, This is the kind of answer Jesus is giving to Peter here. But then he illustrates it in a parable. And so here's what he does. He first tells Peter, it's like a king. So he's comparing God and his grace to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so he starts going through the books and he discovers a servant who owes him a lot of money. So much money that it would have taken this servant just earning an average day's wage 200,000 years to pay back what he owed. An irrational amount of money, right? Irrational that, that this would have ever have happened for this servant to begin paying it back. So he calls the servant in, you owe me this money, the servant pleads for mercy, okay? And so long story short, um, the, the servant offers to pay back, yeah, right, the amount of money. The king says, I'll tell you what, I won't accept your payment. I won't take the payment plan, but here's what I will do. I'll cancel your debt in full. And so Jesus is teaching Peter, this is how God forgives us. Peter, this is you in the equation. Then Jesus transitions to what comes out of this servant's life now because the king releases him. Go. So the servant goes out with the release of debt fresh on his mind. God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy fresh on his mind. Comes across a servant who now owes him money. This time, a hundred days wages. Much more rational right? You can get to the end of that. You could have paid that back. And he, he calls the servant in. The servant comes in. Now, this is servant to servant now, right? What happened vertically, now we're looking at it horizontally. And servant to servant, the, the servant who now owes money comes to the one who's just been forgiven and says, please for mercy, please forgive me. Give me patient with me and I'll, I'll pay you back everything that I owe. And what does, the, what does the servant do? He says, go to jail. Now this kindles the wrath of the king. Let's pick this up in verse 32. Then his master, the king, summoned him and said to him, this is the one he had just forgiven completely, summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, keep in mind, Jesus is using this to answer 
Peter's question. And then he responds in verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Still owed 200,000 years worth of debt. At that point, he reinstated the debt, 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see what Jesus is teaching with a very bold illustration to Peter? Peter, what God so richly and immeasurably pours out on you, you must, you must let it flow. I'm not, God isn't forgiving you simply just to forgive you, but that through you, his grace would flow. Now, after this in the gospels, Peter um, Peter is at the cross recorded as denying Jesus three times, okay? And it's interesting that when Jesus comes to him after the resurrection to reinstate him, to reestablish his identity, he does something three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. So Jesus is saying, hey, are we good vertically? You love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Then do what? Feed my sheep. And just to make sure Peter got it, he says it again. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I, I love you. I'm here. I'm zoned in. You're all I want. Good. Go feed my sheep. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Do you love this grace that I so richly pour out on you? Yes. Good. Go give it to them. And so we see just this, this, this angst to God's grace pouring out on our lives that it must flow. Now, if you think about the implications of the gospel so far, one, we've been united to Christ in this beautiful, rich adoption relationship. Two, we've been united in a community with people who don't look like us, right? Don't look like we should fit in together, but Christ has united us as our cornerstone. But then this third implication seems to be the place that we most often put the brakes on with God. That somehow God expects or wants to use me right, and taking the gospel to other people. Like, I'm, I'm really comfortable coming in and sitting and hearing the good news again, singing about the good news again, maybe even, you know, giving a little bit of time or money, just a little bit, but then, but then when, when, when Jesus comes to you and says, hey, do you like the grace that's in your, you good with that? Come with me. Like, I'm just hearing, like, this is moment. We only do this for about an hour and a half on Sunday. The rest of the week, we're going. Come go with me. Now, I want to look at something else real quick before we, we come back and finish this. Um, so in the very next verse, Paul is going to, he's going to talk about his own experience with, with Jesus. So we know that he's thinking in terms of his own experience, the way God has forgiven him as he thinks about others. In verse 3, he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written, probably thinking about his journey on the, on the road to um, Emmaus, where he's struck down. Emmaus, Damascus, I get them confused. In Acts, where Jesus slaps him down with a blinding light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and all of a sudden, Saul, this author, he's humbled. And he realized, oh, I've been killing your church. And then Jesus walks him to a town, sends somebody to him, unveils his eyes, not just to the physical world, but to the spiritual world to see this beautiful, rich grace of who God is. So Paul's, he's saying, I, I haven't lost sight of that. How the revelation was made known to me. So he says, 
I've written, I've written to you briefly on that, verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, verse five. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. I wrestle with that verse quite a bit this week, trying to fully understand, Paul, what are you trying to say to us here? Because on one hand, it sounds like Paul is just saying that only the people who are alive right now have any indication of what the gospel is. The problem with that is in other letters, he's written about how the gospel was, has been revealed, right? All the way back at least to Genesis 12, he mentions the gospel being preached. And we can see indi indications all the way back to three, um, Genesis 3 at the fall, a promise of this coming rescuer, the, prom the coming gospel. And not only that, as far back as you can go, you can see, begin to see the implications that it's not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles, okay? So this idea that the salvation would come to Jews and Gentiles alike wasn't new news to the folks, okay? So sons of other generations have, have actually heard this news. As I wrestled with what I felt like Paul might be trying to say to us and, and really dug into the text, this is the way I'm visualizing it in my mind. I think it helps us understand then the fullness of why he's calling it a mystery, um, do you guys remember movie theaters that used to have marquees out front? Still a few of them around. They're kind of like historic monuments. But where you would show up at the movie theater, and, uh, and so on the marquee out front would be the title of the movie, the rating, the showtimes, all that sort of stuff. And you could see the three or four. We had four movies in my hometown, so there'd be four movies up there, and you could see what selections you had. And then you, then you buy your ticket, and you go inside, and you see the movie, Okay, so you see what's playing or what's gonna be playing and then you go inside and see it. So this is the way I think Paul is describing this mystery of the gospel that, um, that in the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, Genesis 50, you know, Exodus 1, 3, we see these snapshots of the gospel. What he's saying is that's the marquee. That's God saying this is what's going to be playing. This is what's gonna be playing out in human history. This is gonna be the salvation of the world out here. But what has happened when, when Jesus comes to earth is now we go into the theater and the curtain opens up. And what was being described on the marquee is unveiled and we get to see it. Now, here's the, the thing, the struggle that, that's happening. Historically, the Jews and Gentiles had a really hard time getting along, okay? Um, so much of the, the division in the church in the book of Acts, particularly around 14, 15, is, is this division between the two, that as the church was uniting, inside the church there were still two factions, the Jews and the Gentiles. Matter of fact, Peter at one point starts playing into this and playing favorites. In Galatians, Paul says, that's why I got in Peter's face, because he was still allowing with his own actions there to be a separation between the two. And so here's what I see happening. This is me. So it's almost like the Jews knew what was going to be playing. It was on the marquee. It was clear. God said, hear it. I'm going to make those who aren't my people, my people. I'm going to adopt people into my family who don't look like you. Salvation is not just going to be for the Jews. It's going to be for the Gentiles. And then the Jews came into the theater and the curtain opened up and went, oh, wait. There are Jews and Gentiles on that stage. And even though God has said, this is what I'm going to do, when he actually did it and unveiled it, there was an issue and a pushback. And so Paul is talking about this mystery of the gospel that was never been unveiled like it is right now to the current generation. 
Even though the former generations had a snapshot, they knew what was coming, they knew what was coming when Jesus opened the curtain and unveiled himself as the salvation of all mankind, the people had an issue with it. Which has not which is not made known to the sons of men of other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. First part of verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are. You feel it now? And then he's gonna lay out the three implications of the mystery of the gospel. What's being unveiled as the mystery is that God is calling those who, his people who don't look like they should be called his people. That's the Beautiful mystery of this gospel that the Gentiles are. The Gentiles are what? That the Gentiles are on the stage too. That the Gentiles are included in this. All right, and then he rolls on to say, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. What's he doing? He's referring back to Ephesians 1. He's already written a letter, 3 through 14. Starting with adoption, ending in inheritance, he's reminding us of that first part of the gospel implication. They're fellow heirs with you Jews. Don't you think for a second you get adopted in and they don't. So then he moves on to say, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. You know how when you get together on Sunday, part of you sit on one side, part of you sit on the other? There aren't two bodies in Christ. There's one, one body. And then he ends with this. Not only are the Gentiles fellow heirs, they're members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul is reminding them this mystery of the gospel that saves us, even the worst of us. But this gospel that saves us also does what? Unites us, one body. But the gospel that unites us also moves us. Very subtly, Paul uses a word that gets translated partakers in the promise. He's gonna use the same word in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about the sons of disobedience and whenever you go act like them, you're actually partners with them. So there's the word that's being used here. That not only are we recipients of God's grace, recipients of salvation, not only have we been united into community, rich, God-honoring community, but he's also calling us to partner with him. We're partakers in the same promise. I wanna, I wanna end with two different places where Paul brings up this same point a little bit more vividly. One of them is from Romans 10. And just quite simply, um, Paul presents an equation through rhetorical questions. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, he starts with this beautiful promise that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13, okay? He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's awesome. How does that happen? So then he begins to ask these questions. First question is this. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And if you need a visual, it's almost like Paul is talking to a church who has richly received God's grace and refusing to go tell anybody about it. That's the imagery I get in my mind. And then about halfway through it, God all of a sudden puts me as one of those people out there. So just seeing so you know, that's what I'm thinking. So then he begins with this. Well, come, let's talk for a minute. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? That's, that's a pretty good point, Paul, right? So they can't just believe by, by like watching me walk by with a t-shirt on? That won't work? What about the fish 
emblem on the back of my car with Jesus looks like it swallowed Jesus. Is that, will that work? It won't work either. No, it won't work. How will they believe? How will they believe? Or how will they call on somebody who they haven't believed in? They have to believe. And then he answered, then he rolls into this next one. And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? There has to be a proclamation. Oh, I just I can't just go rake my neighbor's leaves and they get saved? No. Um I can't just go be nice to people and they just get curious about where my joy comes from and get saved? No. How can they call on somebody that they've never believed in and how can they believe unless they hear? You see where he's going with this, right? So he finishes with this. And how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? Well, that's what church is for. No, that's what you're for. That's what I'm for. 15, And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet. What are feet used for? Moving. How beautiful is this movement? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? Now, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul again brings it up in more practical terms and doesn't give us any room to say, well, he's not talking about me. He's talking about the preacher. So in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14, he says this, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us, it moves us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you see the all-inclusiveness of that, that phrase? I don't care. Gentile, Jew, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, then what I'm about to say applies to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, here, here it comes, reconciled us to himself, part one of the mystery of the gospel, right? Part two, and gave us what? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What God did in us and to us, he wants to do through us. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us then the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's a powerful phrase. God making his appeal to the world through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I wanna end here and we're gonna come back next week for maybe part two of this, okay? So here's where I wanna end. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that every life present here today from the three or four week old newborn to the oldest person in the room, you are here. Yeah, even the, the child still in the womb are here on purpose today. But I don't only mean here at Solid Rock at 1156. What I mean is here on earth at this time, born into the family you were born into, given the genetics you were given, given the life circumstances that you were given, okay? That when God was forming you in the womb, he wasn't simply just putting your eyes in the right place, Okay? Now, 
What that means for us is this. If that's true, I believe it's true. If that's true, then that means that every person in our lives is, is therefore not there by mistake. That God has positioned you in relationship with people on purpose. That means at work, people that you come in contact with, you share cubicles with, offices with, you work on projects with, you answer to who answer to you. All those people are there on purpose, okay? That means that the people in your family are there on purpose. I don't think God just threw you a couple of kids to raise. He specifically entrusted you to raise the children he gave to you. He's, he entrusted you. He stewarded you. He gave you the stewardship of that. That means that the people here in this church community, we, right? We don't get a say on who gets to come show up here on Sundays. Now, here's what I want to say. Let me ask this question, three concluding statements. How will they, those people, ever respond to the good news of God's immeasurable, loving, and saving grace if you don't tell them? There's, a, um, there's an illustration that comes to mind. Uh, I, in the ninth grade, I had a Mr. Boyer for physical science. And, um, and Mr. Boyer was a lot like Mr. Wizard, Mr. Wizard's World, Nickelodeon. He loved to like teach us something and then show us and we would play with stuff. And we, would, we caught the school on fire. It was a lot of fun to be in Mr. Boyer's class. In one particular lesson, he was teaching us about um, conductivity, electricity, and how it flows uh, you know, through things that have little resistance. He was just teaching us all this scientific jargon. Then he's like, now you guys wanna, you wanna see what it's really like? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, we're gonna become a conduit of electricity, a human conduit of electricity. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And so you remember those balls that have like the little lightning bolts going off inside? I don't know what they're called, but they're really cool and you could touch them. Well, anyway, he had one of those that somehow you could touch it and receive an electric current. And so he lined us up around the classroom, hand for hand. He gave us this long speech about, uh, and this is just shows where his humor came from, about not breaking hands, because if you did, it would shock you, it would zap you if you ever if you broke your hands. Do not break your hands. So we broke our hands, it came, electricity came all the way around. I think we lit up a small voltage light bulb or something, you know, to show electricity flowing through us and lighting it up. And then just to prove what he said was true, because he didn't want us walking out thinking he was a liar, he's like, okay, you in the back, drop your hands. Zap! Ah! And he just giggled and thought it was funny. But the, but the point was that in order for electricity to flow through you, you can't lose contact. And if you do, it'll awaken you to the fact that you just broke contact. As long as you're locked in, right, and don't let go, it's going to flow through you. That is your life on the timeline of humanity. See how quickly we get lost in our lifespan, and we, we, only, we see that as the only timeline where we started, where we're ending. And we forget that, man, my 50, 60, 90 years is like a sliver on the timeline of humanity. Yet God chooses you and I on that timeline from generation to generation to be the conduit through which his grace moves. You're here today because of the ministry of the apostles. Now, God, could he have done it another way? Sure, but he chose, this is how he chose to do it. So that when Jesus rescues me, he comes to me and reaches to me and says, Jason, I, I want to save you. I want to love you. I want to forgive you. And I reach out a hand and I grab his hand. Quickly, he says, hey, look to your right. Now you reach out your hand and you begin touching other people. This is the mystery of the gospel. 
God would love me to save me to begin with. Two, that he would unite me to people who look like you. You to me. And three, that he would choose to work through us. You see that? Stewards of God's grace. You, my friend, if you are a Christian, are a steward of God's grace. Here's the three statements and we'll pray. To partake in the immeasurable grace of God is to also partake in the mission. To be reconciled to God is to also be a minister of reconciliation. To know Christ, to have a deep abiding love relationship with Jesus is also to be an ambassador for Christ. That's what I believe Paul is saying so subtly here. My imprisonment, my imprisonment isn't about me ultimately, it's also for you. God's grace in my life, it's not just about me. I'm just a steward of God's grace for you. My suffering, your behalf. That we would all see ourselves there. Let me pray for us and then we'll come back next week and we'll do part two. And we'll even look at some testimonies and some practical examples of how this plays out in our everyday life. Let's pray together.